0: That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm asking questions submitted by listeners to Dr. Crystal Watson, senior scholar at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Let's listen. Thank you very much, Dr. Watson, for joining me today. Uh, This is an episode that we're doing every week where we ask questions that we've gotten from listeners uh, to experts at the Center for Health Security. You're a senior scholar at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So um, your number came up this week. Thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dr. Sharstein. I appreciate it.
0: So first question, what's new for people to know this week about the novel coronavirus? What do we know now that we didn't know quite as well a week ago?
1: Yeah, we're seeing a little bit more about the epidemiology. We're seeing um, the patient load increase. We're seeing the numbers of cases increase significantly in New York in particular. And we're seeing hospitals struggling under the weight of that patient load. So what we're learning this week is that what has happened in other parts of the world, including Italy, is indeed possible here in the US. And that's what we're trying to avoid.
0: Thanks. Anything else that you want to mention?
1: Yeah, we're also seeing serologic testing coming on board. So this is testing for antibodies to see if they have had the disease, even if they don't have symptoms or have mild symptoms, it will enable us to have a better understanding of the underlying burden of disease in our communities. And then we're also seeing some early reporting out of clinical trials for some drugs. This is still really early and we need a lot more work to understand how effective these different drugs are, but We're seeing that move forward, which is encouraging.
0: Great. I want to circle back on the serological testing. How could that be useful and how does it differ from the kind of testing that's already been done?
1: Yeah, so serological testing is testing for antibodies. So it's testing for that actual immune response to infection. And so that's done, it's most effective about five to seven days after somebody has started to show symptoms. It can be used in combination with our current testing approach to help provide more reliable testing, but it can also be used to do a survey of the community to understand who has been infected, to understand what those mild and asymptomatic cases might be in the community to help us get a better picture of where the virus is moving in our country. And we also need that to support steps going forward, if we're going to lift these social distancing measures eventually, serologic testing is going to be really important for that to know who's been infected, have some sort of certification that they've been infected, they can go back out into the community. So it can support a lot of our different public health measures that we want to to implement.
0: Right. And all that will probably depend on research to really understand how much protection those antibodies give.
1: Absolutely. So Some early indications are that it does give some protection, but we don't know how durable that immunity will be yet. So we need more. But it at least
0: creates the opportunity for that kind of potential approach to reopening society. And as I understand it, the current testing is really testing for the presence of the virus right now in someone.
1: Right. Yeah. So that testing gets less effective as the person starts to recover. And then the serologic testing actually gets more effective because the body is creating antibodies to the infection itself. Yeah.
0: And you can um, have uh, the results stay positive for quite a long time. They do. So you could look back and see who's been infected over a period. So that's a pretty right. um, important development that that testing is becoming about.
1: Yeah. And researchers are looking at Possibly understanding what when somebody was infected using these types of tests. So there's lots of different ways that they can be used.
0: Good. Uh, next question is about chloroquine. We've heard a lot about chloroquine. Um, how good is the evidence on chloroquine? Should people be taking it if they're concerned that they have COVID 19?
1: Yeah, there's no existing high quality evidence to support widespread use of chloroquine at the moment. There are some very small tests that have shown. Uh, marginal efficacy, we need a lot more information before we roll this out widely, and I think we've heard some stories in the news about people trying to self medicate and that going horribly wrong so it's it's important not to jump the gun on this one.
0: What about ibuprofen? they're still circulating stories that people should absolutely avoid ibuprofen during um, with covid nineteen
1: yeah, i don't think we see the evidence for that either, so It really has gone kind of viral and without a lot of scientific basis. So it needs further uh, study, but we haven't seen the evidence for that.
0: So we really need to look for recommendations from, let's say, CDC or FDA or other health authorities on these things rather than necessarily believing every uh, headline that crawls across the screen.
1: Yeah. World Health Organization is also looking into this and, and making recommendations.
0: So, why is evidence so important? You know, why not just give it a try?
1: Well, uh, I mean, there are a lot of there's a lot of harm that can come from rolling drugs out prematurely. We don't know what the downstream effects are on individuals. We don't know what those what those accumulative effects would be in the future. And so we don't want what's being popularly said in other contexts, the, the cure to be worse than the disease itself. And so we need to make sure that we balance these risks and the evidence can give us a much better idea of what's effective. And what is harmful. We also don't want to give people false hope and have them take something that they think is gonna reduce their risk when then they go out into the community and get sick. There's a lot of important reasons we need this evidence.
0: Great. Um, Here's a question Some people talk about the importance of testing and how other countries have used a lot of testing yeah. but then you see places saying you don't necessarily need testing just stay away from other people if you feel sick so you know which is it is it testing is it distancing how how do you help people yeah. understand this discussion
1: yeah our messaging right now around testing is for not everybody needs a test and this is because largely because we don't have tests enough tests for everyone so right now we need to save those tests for the people who need them most eventually what we do need though is to we need to keep pushing on creating widespread availability of these tests because this will help us suppress future outbreaks of this disease if we can test everyone who we think has been exposed isolate sick people very quickly trace their contacts test them as well make sure they're quarantined and to see if they develop illness that will help us get this under control and be able to potentially lift some of these social distancing measures eventually.
0: So in other words, what you're saying is one of the reasons for all of these intense social distancing measures now is to buy time to be able to stand up more of a system that can help be more targeted and deploy testing as part of a public health strategy.
1: Yeah, that's definitely part of it. It's also really important to do it now because we don't have a handle on where the disease is in the country and we are going to get this crush of people on our hospitals so these are the tools we have right now to limit that impact on hospitals and make sure that more people right. can survive yeah
0: so it's that's probably the number one, reason. Number one reason we want to yeah. we want to shut down the illness as much as possible and protect the healthcare workers healthcare system from getting overwhelmed but number two we want to buy time to have a more effective public health response
1: Absolutely. And if we have that more effective public health response, then we can get back to a little bit more normalcy. And then hopefully that will get us through to where we have a vaccine.
0: Great. This is not the easiest question to ask, but someone asked if someone needs a respirator, does that mean they're going to die?
1: It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to die. They're going to have a serious illness. And it's, it's not a rosy picture, but that doesn't mean that everyone dies if you go on a respirator. And we need to have as many respirators, as many possibilities to be on a respirator if they need it as we can. And so right now we're trying to in- increase the number of respirators that are available around the country. Governors are looking for purchasing of new respirators. The Strategic National Stockpile is moving respirators out to hospitals. So that's what we're working on. They may need to be on a respirator for an extended period, though, for possibly weeks.
0: It basically supports breathing while the lung um, gets into a better shape to be able to breathe itself. Absolutely. Okay, the next question is a change of pace here. Um, If somebody uh, might be exposed at work or out in the world, should they come home, change their clothes, maybe take a shower when they get home?
1: Yeah, I think if you suspect some particular exposure, particularly, so if you are around somebody who's coughing, then that's when I would really focus on that. To come home, basic decontamination: just go, take a shower, wash your clothes in hot water. And if we can do that more, more broadly, that's always good too.
0: Great. And then, talking about all these big efforts, let's say we're successful, or parts of the country are successful. They don't have a big surge of cases. What does our life look like? How do we? you know, come back from this because people are worried that as soon as they flip the switch and everybody goes back to work, then suddenly they got to turn it back off and everyone has to go back home. So, you know, what is, what what does this eventually look like if we're able to be successful?
1: Yeah, if we are able to weather this this initial search of cases, I think a lot will depend on how we build our public health workforce and how we enable our workforce to, to test people. If we're able to do that and and be very stringent in finding cases, tracing their contacts, isolating, and quarantining people as needed. Then we can keep these outbreaks to a manageable level until we get to a more more permanent solution, which is a vaccine. So I don't think our society is going to go right back to normal um, when we start lifting these measures. There is going to have to be this steady level of managing this pandemic.
0: One more question here, which is about the risk factor. Somebody asks: is the risk factor age or is it just chronic illness and age just happens to go along with chronic illness? In other words, if somebody who is perfectly fit at 80, are they at higher risk or is it just the people who have the chronic illness?
1: Yeah, it's, it's both. It really is both. We're seeing younger people with chronic illnesses get very sick and we're seeing older people without chronic illnesses get very sick. So one thing we see in coronaviruses is this thing called immunosenescence. So as your immune system ages, it gets a little bit less efficient. And so that in itself is a risk factor. When you have an older immune system, it's not able to amount as an effective an attack on this virus.
0: Great. Thank you. Any any final comments for you before we sign off for the week for our Q&A episode?
1: Um, I just hope people keep following the social distancing measures, stay home, stay safe, and, and help each other out as, as much as you can.
0: Thanks, Dr. Watson, for joining me.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith Rogers, and Lamari Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.